Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. At Qualcomm's recently completed Snapdragon Summit in Hawaii, Qualcomm introduced a new gaming platform, portable gaming platform. They're calling the Snapdragon GS, excuse me, G3X in partnership with uh, Razer. Ross, I know you were there enjoying the, the nice balmy weather that um, neither of us have today in New York or Washington, D.C. Why don't you dive in and talk us through a little of the, the platform and what it means for the future of gaming? Sure. So this is really an opportunistic move on Qualcomm's part. The feeling is that they dominate the market for high-end Android gaming handsets, and those games, mobile games in general, have been limited mainly or in large part by the controls. You know, there's only so much you can do uh, with a touchscreen, and so very often the quality of the, the gameplay uh, suffers. There's only uh, so much precision you can wring out of, uh, of these touchscreen controls. And we've seen a number of accessories uh, over the years. Razer, which is Qualcomm's partner on this, uh, initial, on this initial iteration of this product, uh, makes a product called a Kishi, uh, which is a set of uh, Xbox controller-like uh, buttons that envelop uh, an iPhone uh, and turn it into more of kind of a handheld game console, a sort of a, a Switch-like device. Uh, but, uh, but of course, developers can't count on that uh, device being there. So, so essentially what this does is it blends a very high-end smartphone-like chipset uh, that can produce high-resolution graphics, that has haptic controls uh, integrated uh, that uh, has a high quality audio uh, and brings these uh, these tactile button controls to either end. And uh, it, it puts Qualcomm in a strange situation of competing against itself in a way because there are a number of high-end gaming-focused smartphones uh, out there in the market. And of course, that's a, a much larger market for developers to uh, take advantage of, to tap into. Uh, but the idea here was very much uh, that if Qualcomm can capture even a small percentage of the overall gaming market, or the, the smartphone market with this product, uh, that would be a, a very significant market, certainly on par or perhaps exceeding what Nintendo has done with the with the Switch. Uh, there have been a, a couple of efforts teased in this space. Uh, for example, uh, Alienware, the the Dell gaming brand, had uh, shown off a a PC with these controls on the side a few years ago. Never really came to market. More recently, there's been a lot of excitement about the Steam Deck uh, from Valve. Uh, which can run uh, Windows uh, or Linux uh, and taps into uh, Valve's uh, Steam service to um, uh, to provide this kind of portable gaming experience. Uh, but the the other element here is that in addition to taking advantage of uh, Android games, uh, because it has five G, it 
5G integrated, uh, at least again in this uh, initial iteration, there's uh, there's the potential to tap into streaming uh, game services like like Stadia and GeForce Now. And again, with those controls, a lot of those PC-focused games could make the jump to mobile with a better experience than they do on most smartphones today. Xbox Game Pass is another one for, for a more uh, console-like experience. So that that's really the pitch. Um, uh, no, no pricing was announced. Uh, Qualcomm is considering this a, a platform. So we will see other companies coming out with their, their take on this idea. Uh, but at least in the initial uh, reference platform, given everything that it contains, I, I think it's going to be pretty pricey out of the gate. Uh, but Qualcomm was also hinting that they could do versions with lower end versions of the chip uh, that would be more affordable. I, I think it's interesting also that it will support the capability to connect to a full television. You know, there's a lot of discussion about everything going online and cloud based. But what's interesting is that there's still a strong market for hardware. We still need hardware to uh, to play these games. And and one of, to your point, Ross, one of the really interesting opportunities here is that you can take some of these traditional console-based or PC-based games and bring them into the, to the mobile environment. Conversely, you can use a mobile device that's 5G enabled and it can be your console in your home. And there, there's been you know, a lot of discussion around the capability of, of 5G and, and the possibility that at some point we start to use 5G for broadband-like connections to things like our, our game consoles. So it would be natural to think of that as a portable device that you can take on the go, but you can also then connect it to a, a bigger uh, more full screen and, uh, y- you know, and have the, the gaming opportunities there. So I think there's a really interesting uh, opportunity for this type of platform. For that to happen, though, you're really, there, there are really two key differences that I see between that mobile gaming experience, which is by and large a casual gaming experience, and uh, and, and the home console experience. And that's that's business model, and as a result of that, the the depth of games. Uh, one of the questions that I asked at the conference was whether the uh, the developers of this product saw it having any impact on the business models of mobile games, many of which are based on recurring revenues of subscription services or downloadable content or loot boxes uh, that have this free-to-play dynamic and then over time keep uh, asking for more and more uh, more and more money to it often to advance in the game or at least to personalize your character as opposed to the console model where you're paying maybe 60 or 70 dollars up front uh, but you're getting scores of hours of gameplay uh, out of out of that experience and yes sometimes there's some downloadable content but the understanding is that you're getting the the bulk of the gaming experience when you purchase the game, uh, whether it's in a box or, or whether you download it from one of their their game stores, so uh, so maybe maybe physical controls help with that a little bit because 
you know, with the with the touchscreen controls, the the stakes. There may be some concerns about making the stakes too high because uh, it, it can be a bit unfair at times uh, because of the lack of precision that that, that creates. But uh, but it, it, it certainly um, is an opportunity, I think, for these um, for the streaming game services. In fact, there's another option uh, that I didn't mention uh, from a company called Parsec. Uh, which allows you to stream PC games directly from your local television. Uh, these guys are actually based in, I'm, I'm sorry, from your local PC. Uh, these, these guys are actually, or, or at least were based in New York City. I, I met with them maybe, uh, in, I think, in around 2018 uh, and, and wrote a, a piece about them. Uh, so, so that's another option. So if you have a, a, a game library uh, at home and uh, you want to tap into that, there may be an option to do that without necessarily having to go up to the cloud. So that, that will be something supported. Um, one, one, an, another kind of interesting uh, element to this is that because it's just a reference design, there's really no assurance yet around what kind of app store will be available on it. Uh, Qualcomm was saying that it will play virtually any Android game, which kind of implies Google Play, uh, but with China being such an important uh, online gaming market, of course, it's going to need to support uh, the Android uh, ecosystems in China. Uh, so you know, that, that'll be interesting and may have some impact on, on the volume and nature of games available to the product. It would be interesting, too, to see how these type of platforms and these type of products tie into further development of the metaverse. You know, there's a lot of discussion about the metaverse not being exclusively a, a virtual reality experience, but also needing to toggle between different devices based upon where you are. You know, it doesn't always make sense to um, put on virtual reality glasses and have a completely immersive experience there'll be things you'll be doing on your on your phone and you know here's an example of maybe you're gaming on this mobile device and then maybe at home you're having a a more fully immersive virtual experience in a a dedicated space uh and a, a fixed location so some interesting ways this could tie into some broader initiatives i i think it's also interesting from a qualcomm perspective that it provides them scalability of of chips and of platforms. And over time, that should improve yields, drive down costs, drive down price, uh, allow chipsets to work their way into more products. I think we'll see a lot more from Qualcomm on these type of reference designs and, and prototypes, uh, building out platforms that... They hope their other partners will uh, will run with and uh, build out e- dedicated ecosystems for different chip case, you know, chip uses and, and chip use scenarios. Yeah, absolutely, Sean. That was actually a big theme of the event about how Qualcomm, you know, particularly as we reach higher levels of uh, smartphone saturation sees a big part of its future, of course, beyond the smartphone, but leveraging mobile technology in particular 
uh, high levels of uh, performance per watt. Uh, and so, for example, one of the themes that they touched on was uh, being able to implement device-based AI functionality uh, in very low power. Uh, we, we've seen these demos uh, for a number of years now about video conferencing systems that can block out background objects or uh, do a stellar job of eliminating background noises like babies crying or dogs barking or, or cars honking, uh, everything that uh, uh, New York City uh, has to offer when uh, I'm, I'm on some of these uh, video calls. Uh, and, uh, and yet, you know, it, it hasn't really made its way into these products uh, in volume. Uh, but, uh, but with this new functionality and, for example, their latest uh, smartphone chip, the they adopted a new uh, naming convention, so it now it's now the Series 8 Gen 1 is going to be their next smartphone chip, uh, high-end smartphone chip. Uh, they, they can do this with a very low performance per watt, uh, and so that provides more incentive for uh, developers to, to take advantage of it. Uh, the other point that you make that's uh, really, uh, really spot on uh, is this idea of uh, not everything in the metaverse happening through a headset. In fact, uh, just uh, last week, I believe, uh, this company Spatial, uh, also based here in, in New York City, uh, one of the real pioneers of this very horizontally focused virtual meeting space uh, environments, uh, and they announced that they are going to pivot as they have seen far more of their traffic uh, coming at them through non-headset uh, devices, you know, through the web and through smartphones, uh, and they're going to be pursuing a very uh, very vertical, very specialized NFT-driven type of application. Now, maybe some of that is uh, being spurred by a lot of the, the big players like Meta and Microsoft getting a lot more serious about covering these horizontal meeting applications, uh, but it's still an interesting sign that uh, we're, we're a long ways off before the uh, every, everybody has these headsets and they're convenient and they have uh, long battery life and they're as integrated into our lives as uh, smartphones are today. Certainly more to come on that front. It'll be exciting to see what other de device platforms get built out of this. I think it's also, you know, just building more on this is at some times we don't want just a smartphone. We don't want a, a generalist device. While the smartphone is a good Swiss army knife that lets us do a lot of different things in a lot of different places. And it has, it has over time added a tremendous amount of functionality you see that, of course, first and foremost with the camera capabilities of the smartphone, but there's still a very robust DSLR market, for example, and there's still a very robust mobile gaming market and and uh, people want, as you pointed out, Ross, greater precision or, or greater um, capabilities than the smartphone will offer. And at times you want 
to be able to have multiple devices. You want those devices to be separate for any any number of reasons. Yeah, the, the camera argument is an interesting argument because uh, imaging has also been a long-running focus of uh, Qualcomm and its competitors uh, in, the, uh, in the mobile phone market. And of course, we've seen tremendous gains in the quality and the low-light performance uh, in smartphones over the past few years. And so one of the questions that often arises is, why doesn't somebody make a camera that has one of these high-end uh, um, smartphone chips but can also take advantage of the uh, incredible optics that uh, companies like like Nikon and, and Leica um, and, and Canon and others uh, offer. Uh, and uh, it seems that the smartphone guys, while certainly open to having someone put their chips in virtually any kind of device uh, are uh, less uh, sanguine on on that opportunity uh, with the, with the games you know there's uh, not really a clear substitute for those tactile controls at least for now but but these guys seem very very bullish that they will be able to completely overtake uh, the DSLR, and, and it's just a, a matter of time. And uh, you can kind of see it uh, developing, right? Because if you think about something like a, a telephoto lens, right, that's uh, an area where DSLRs have long had, uh, you know, great advantages. Uh, and you can credit uh, Nokia for some of this uh, this rationale many years ago with its pure view uh, phones, um, you know, if you're capturing enough pixels, it's just a question of zooming in, right, to get uh, the thing that's far enough away. We've seen early examples of that with, uh, for example, the Samsung phones and Xiaomi phones that can take 100 megapixel images. Uh, that's going to bump up to even higher, 200, 300 megapixel images. And when you're, again, capturing an image that large, uh, you can capture a tremendous amount of detail uh, from something that's that's far away. So uh, between that and the AI enhancement, uh, they uh, I, I think they really feel that uh, you know the the end is in sight uh, for uh, for those products. I think that latter part is really interesting, and it's how software will play a role and how algorithms and AI will play a role in providing functionality that historically was essentially exclusively hardware driven when you think about the the camera market and now you're looking for ways of augmenting hardware with software so it will be interesting to see and I think we'll see this battle brew in a number of categories where where will we have dedicated hardware versus where will we allow software and algorithms to augment the experience and if not replicate the experience completely and the quality completely, even perhaps surpass it in in some instances. In other news this week, we saw that Samsung Electronics announced that they would be combining their mobile and consumer electronics units. And they unveiled as related to that, uh, some new leadership to replace its uh, previously three major division leaders. This all went into effect this week and was one of the uh, the biggest changes that we've seen from Samsung 
since uh, at least 2017, so in, in several years. Ross, what are, uh, what, what are your thoughts about uh, Samsung's motivation to combine their mobile and consumer electronics divisions? Yeah, there, there wasn't a reason given for the change, but I think there's a strong argument that Samsung is responding to a lot of the same dynamics we just discussed in regards to Qualcomm's motivations, uh, the the rise of the post-smartphone device economy, uh, particularly around smart home uh, and the Internet of Things, uh, and uh, particularly for smart for Samsung, which has long been challenged uh, or has long sought to to build up the robustness of its ecosystem, uh, this could uh, this could be a, a very positive move uh, because you know you've had the watches and the tablets and the PC kind of in that that mobile uh, group, um, and I think a, a lot of what the focus there had been on was around business uh, applications, which are of course a and, and, and enterprise customers, which are, of course, a, a high margin uh, customer base for them. Uh, but, uh, but a lot of the, the home networking stuff, smart things, um, you know, certainly the smart appliances, uh, th- those were all in the consumer division. So by uh, bringing down some of the artificial barriers, uh, I, I think there's an opportunity to tell a, a stronger uh, ecosystem story and to create better integration, certainly between uh, you know point you just brought up, Sean, their their phones and their televisions, uh, where uh, you know they they are such a, a strong player. So uh, that's that's what strikes me as as some of the the motivation behind the move. Yeah, and in their kind of official commentary around the announcement, they talked about strengthening synergies, you know, across the different divisions. What you would expect them to to say, I think it it is interesting. I mean, I you do see perhaps a a tighter blend between that consumer market and that mobile market. And we also saw that Samsung uh, announced. Uh, last month, its plans to extend its semiconductor plant in in uh, Texas, building out uh, you know multi billion dollar fab and and laid out a multi hundred million dollar investment plan around semiconductors and artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, you know, and, and other elements. So, um, you know, Samsung is a very big organization with uh, a strong influence in a lot of different markets. And so it'll be interesting to see if there is any noticeable uh, impact from this, if we if we notice any kind of key operational changes in the years to come. I also wonder if some of it is a response to Samsung's changing competitive environment, right? So particularly uh, in their home country, having that long-running uh, rivalry with uh, LG. Uh, LG was structured similarly. It had its mobile division uh, sort of off by itself. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it might have made more sense for Samsung to be structured to 
compete more directly with uh, LG Mobile. But if you look at their competitors now, certainly there's no mobile division at Apple, right? They provide a very united uh, product line uh, with uh, very, very few seams among them. Uh, and then there is, uh, you know, there are companies like Xiaomi, uh, which have a, you know, very uh, well-populated ecosystem of devices that we don't get to see here in the U.S., but it is quite comprehensive. Uh, and so as uh, that company builds its um, uh, influence and market share in mobile, particularly in Western, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, it, uh, it, it may behoove uh, Samsung to, uh, you know, to, to counter with, with a, a more similar structure. It's probably a good place to end this week's episode of Techspansive. Uh, again, I'm Sean Dubrovac from Mavrio Institute. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks for listening.